This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to The Gaggle, an AZ Central podcast where we chat with reporters, experts, and special guests to keep you fully informed on the state's political news. I'm your host, Ron Hansen. I cover national politics for the Arizona Republic. And I'm Yvonne Winget Sanchez, also a national political reporter for the Republic. In today's episode, we're talking about rising homelessness in Arizona. We'll break down what state resources are available, whether they've increased or decreased over time, and how those changes affect the number of homeless people on the streets. In short, how political decisions can create and exacerbate homelessness. And stay tuned, we've got a bonus segment at the end of today's show. In that segment, you'll hear from Democratic presidential candidate Mike Bloomberg, who was in Phoenix on Saturday. Let's start with a little background before we dive in on this. So once a year, the Maricopa Association of Governments, or MAG, counts the number of homeless people in the county. It's a big event involving many people, and it takes months to compile the data into a report. Just last week, MAG went out to do the 2020 count. We'll get those results sometime this summer. In 2019, according to MAG, there were 6,600 people experiencing homelessness on the night of January 21, 2019. That was up more than 310 people from the 2018 count. At the same time, while the Valley experiences rising homelessness, shelter beds for these people are going away. In fact, the number of shelter beds have decreased by about 30% since 2014. So it used to be the case that most homeless people had shelter, even if it wasn't their own. But in 2019, 50% of homeless people in Arizona were without shelter entirely. And 2019 was the sixth straight year that unsheltered homelessness increased. And by unsheltered homelessness, we mean people who are living in desert washes, on the streets, in vehicles, or other places that are not really intended for people to live in. The increase in unsheltered homeless people is at least a byproduct of having fewer shelters available locally. And of course, Phoenix's affordable housing crisis doesn't help. Metro Phoenix's home prices broke record highs last year. And as of 2018, Metro Phoenix renters had to earn at least $20 an hour to afford an apartment without struggling. So today, we're trying to get a sense of how we got here and how do we get out of it. Joining us today is Jessica Baim, our City of Phoenix reporter. And Katherine Rager, our longtime real estate reporter. Thank you, lady reporters, for joining us. Thank you. Yeah, happy to be here. So this week, Jessica, you actually helped out on our sister podcast, Valley 101. I sure did. That show answers your questions every week about Greater Phoenix. It's produced by the same team that produces The Gaggle. And in it this week, you guys tackled what it's like to live homeless in the Valley. It's cold, it's freezing. It's um, 
Pretty much the same routine. Uh, hang out usually in Kleinman Park or another park um, during the day, and then when they close it down at 10 o'clock, we go and try to find a business we can park, you know, in the parking lot or behind of. Yeah, so more than a dozen of us went out with volunteers for the annual point-in-time count this year, and we tried to kind of understand the variety of experiences of people who are experiencing homelessness in the Valley. Since we knew you'd be doing that, we thought for the gaggle we'd have you and Catherine on to talk about that same issue, but this time with more of a focus on policy and what's actually being done about it on the governmental side. That's great. I'm super excited to dive in. Okay, so let's start with the most basic question. Um, Why is homelessness rising at this point? We have a great economy. Why are we going in the wrong direction on this? We don't have enough affordable housing. Housing prices continue to climb here in the Valley. And according to a new report, Phoenix is no longer one of the most affordable places for home buyers. Uh, We have a short of about 200,000 homes we need for our homeless population. And think about if 2.5 people live in the typical apartment Metro Phoenix, that's almost half a million people who cannot find homes they can afford. We stayed with family, but because of my kids, they got irritated and kicked us out. So they're homeless, and we don't have the funding to create more. Our housing trust fund um, was capped back, it used to be $40 million a year, got capped during the recession, the Great Recession, at $2.5 million. They raised it to $15 million, but it needs to go up a lot more. How can you connect the, the state housing trust fund to homelessness? Like in layman's terms, what does that mean? So it is a fund and it's not a tax. It's a fund. Um, the money comes from unclaimed um, assets that are sold. And it's been around since the late 80s. And essentially it funds housing. It funds homeless shelters. It funds affordable homes. And uh, there's also a, a federal tax income credit. That federal tax income credit creates about 3000 affordable homes in Arizona a year, and we have a $200,000 lag. So without that fund, I mean, $15 million is a lot more than we've been getting, but it's not enough. There's just not the money there. And regular developers um, don't do this kind of housing. It's, it's more expensive. It's tougher to do. It takes longer. And so that funding is huge. And we don't have strong eviction protections for renters? No. Arizona's eviction laws are designed for speed. Very, very easy. And evictions are at a record high again for last year. Last year, in Maricopa County alone, there were more than 42,000 eviction judgments issued. That's one for every 14 of our rental households, and a rate nearly seven times that as in New York City. Which has a no- um, it, you can be evicted in a few days. You can be evicted, you know, within 30 days of um, missing a payment. And we have a real problem with all of these affordable older complexes, apartments across the valley. You see them everywhere. They've been redone and they raise the rents and they can do that. And then you tell someone you're going to pay $200 more. You can't afford it. So it sounds like we sort of have this perverse effect that the better the economy is doing, the more pressure there is to just churn through uh, tenants who to find the ones that can keep current. Yes, it's very sad. It is a, a horrible byproduct of it. And again, they're not building enough of the affordable complexes to replace the ones that are being upgraded and made fancy with higher rents. <laughs> 
Yeah. And so I heard it described this way for the first time last week, talking to one of the volunteers. They called it down renting, which is basically where you are taking people who used to be able to afford, you know, what we consider market rate, like the general uh, general income. And now they are moving into the lower threshold of rents and they push those people down to the lower threshold of rents until eventually you're pushing people all the way down and out onto the streets. And so eventually a lot of these people are homeless. And earlier we made the distinction about unsheltered versus sheltered homelessness. So Jessica, can you give us a sense of why specifically unsheltered homelessness is on the rise? Sure. So one thing that did occur that we know led to at least a few hundred additional people experiencing unsheltered homelessness is CAS, which is the central shelter in downtown Phoenix, or I guess a little bit south of downtown Phoenix. They closed their overflow shelter. Happening now, a dire situation in downtown Phoenix, an already packed men's homeless shelter closing after tonight deemed unlivable. The city of Phoenix now fighting to free up money for new housing options. ABC I never saw it by all accounts it probably was a health hazard and needed to be closed. Uh, but they haven't replaced those beds at this point. So that was at least a couple hundred people who were getting shelter in some form that no longer are. But beyond that, um, a lot of cities are sort of focusing their investments on what we call outreach, which is people who go out and try to connect people with services or to more permanent housing solutions. Um, but in the meantime, you have no, you have limited funding, I should say, for emergency shelters, just normal shelter beds for people who aren't, you know, able or ready to get into permanent housing. And I've been told by folks that that's really put a strain on those resources to provide shelter, which has then resulted in more people not being sheltered. The shelters don't have the funding they need to keep up with the growing homeless population. You know, the Housing Trust Fund uh, was $40 million, and Governor Brewer in 2010 swept it to offset the budget shortfall. And since then, it's been about $2.5 million a year. That difference. This year, uh, last year, they made it 15 million and they had some good projects, some homeless to help um, veterans and um, shelters to help people with um, uh, disabilities. And that's great, but still way below what we need. We're not even close. So is there any particular area in the valley or the state where our homeless neighbors reside? So I know there are people who have made comments like, do we even have a homeless population here? Because they may come from cities where homelessness is more clustered, where you go to downtown and you see it. And ours is a little less clustered, though I will say anyone wondering if we have a homeless population should go down to Madison and about Ninth Avenue. It really does look like a mini skid row over there. But like our valley itself, the homeless population is sprawled across the county. And if you look at the point in time count from last year and you just look at a map of where these people were found, it's really alarming to see just how sprawled the population is. And I think that's why some people maybe don't understand or believe the extent of the problem we have because they 
don't see it as visibly as maybe you do in other places. And while we're not at the level of an LA, Seattle, San Francisco, we are certainly, you know, approaching a level that should be of concern to all of us. Uh, you know, we say that the point in time survey says about 6,000 people. We know that's an undercount. I've heard, you know, that it could be up to like a third or a fourth of reality. So we're talking about tens of thousands of people. And that's not even including the people who are on the brink of homelessness. So are the housing programs working? And if so, why are these numbers still rising? We don't have enough. We don't have enough funding. We don't have, you know, the private sector, they're, they're trying to come in and help out. You know, you can donate $25 when you buy a house or sell a house. They're trying to find more funding. They're trying to get a state tax credit to do it because we just don't have the money, the resources. But we have a lot of people who really care. Okay. So you've noted repeatedly that... Um, we used to do better at funding uh, programs to try and get at this. But when was Arizona's homelessness at its lowest point? And what did the funding picture look like at that time? That's a really tough question. And it's not really a fair one in a lot of ways because the valley looked so different even 10 years ago, 20 years ago, that yes, our, our situation was a lot better at that point. But it was also like managing, you know, a couple thousand people who are experiencing homelessness, not tens of thousands. I will say that homelessness in the Valley started to become visible um, after two things happened in the 90s. The county hospital closed, and so you had a lot of people with mental health issues that were now homeless. And then we also started what we are still on, which is our mission of redeveloping downtown. Part of that was getting rid of those, a lot of those low rate daily hotels and, you know, they call them single room occupancies. Um, and that was where a lot of people who couldn't afford a permanent residence were living. And those those options for people just don't exist anymore. I don't know of many, you know, hotels where you can get a room for, you know, 10, 20 bucks a night anymore. So let's cut to the million dollar question if we can. What would it take to bring Arizona's homeless rate down in some significant way? And, and what can we do about this? So let's just say that somehow we decide to build 6,614 units of affordable housing, which is, according to the point in time count, the number of people we have experiencing homelessness in the valley. So first of all, there's no way to know how expensive that could be, but we know it would be expensive. Land costs are rising. Construction labor is more difficult to come by. So we don't have money. That's one problem. The second problem is by the time we got around to building all of this, there would be 6,614 additional people who would need housing. So really, we need a couple of things. People who are looking at this problem very seriously say that there's kind of a two-pronged approach we need to take. We need to find, you know, an emergency solution to the number of people living on our streets. But then we need to start thinking long-term about how we stop homelessness from ever occurring in the first place. And there are a lot of regulations and laws that make it difficult for cities to uh, require developers, for example, to pitch in on this problem. That happens in a lot of cities. We're not allowed in Arizona to do that. Um, so you just talked about what we can do. So I guess the big question is, what are we going to do about this problem moving forward? What might the legislature, which is currently controlled by Republicans, and Governor Doug Ducey, 
you know, what might they do on this in terms of the budget or in terms of implementing some programs that might be able to help these folks as we know they've been kind of reluctant to invest or spend money on this front, um, at least in recent years. We are in the middle of a legislative session right now, and there are a few bills in front of the legislature that could possibly put a dent in this problem. Um, One of the big things that a lot of people are excited about is hopefully setting aside some funding for a West Valley senior shelter. Um, And that would take some of the burden off of Cass right now, who has, you know, almost 200 seniors um, living at that shelter put them into a more, you know, controlled area for that population and open up some additional beds. We also are going to see within the next couple of months, CAS come before the city of Phoenix and ask to add about 500 beds to the current human services campus that I've discussed uh, just south of downtown Phoenix. Um, You know, those are all things that kind of fall into that, uh, you know, two-pronged approach of emergency solutions, and then we're going to have to start looking at those long-term solutions. And that could come through increased allocation to the housing trust fund that Catherine's talked about. Yes. And, you know, the private sector is stepping up, and particularly the real estate industry. And that makes sense because, you know, they're providing homes and they want they sell homes. This is how they make money. So why not? Have them step up. The Arizona Housing Fund uh, was formed, and you can volunteer um, $25 on your closing costs. Uh, if you buy or sell a home, real estate agents are getting in on it, home builders. I think they have about $250,000, so it's a start to get in there. And um, there are innovative projects. Because the thing is, you know, um, if someone's homeless and they are dealing with certain issues, maybe it's addiction or just um, health issues. They need that support. You know, you just don't put them in an apartment. And so um, United Healthcare, our biggest Medicare provider, partnered with Chicanas Por La Casa, and they built, rehabbed a apartment complex in Maryvale. And essentially, it's supportive care, but they have they are saving almost $50,000 on each resident's healthcare costs a year because they have that care there. And they're transitioning to um, jobs, and they're getting that support. So we need more housing like that Definitely. So if Arizona doesn't handle our homeless uh, population, it could become the next L.A.? Is that is that a fair kind of portrait of what could happen? Fair point. We are at a tipping point. You know, we have long been for the West, um, uh, you know, relatively affordable compared to L.A., you know, our home prices and our apartments in San Francisco, Seattle. But um our costs are climbing. And, you know, companies come here and bring jobs because we're affordable. And if we're not, we'll have fewer jobs. We will have, we don't create the housing we need. We'll have more homeless people, more people struggling. You know, people are getting pushed out that are making minimum wage. You know, they're working, they're working jobs, but they can't afford our housing costs. So people are alarmed and they're looking at this, the private sector and government by, you know, raising the housing trust fund last year to 15 million is a good start. Are there other states that are doing this better in terms of responding to the, the homeless problem? Um, who, who should we look to for guidance on this? So I will say this is definitely a national concern and there are many, many cities dealing with the same things that we are. There are some cities that are trying some things out that 
now our cities are looking at. For example, in Minneapolis, they've gotten rid of single-family zoning, uh, which is basically an idea of allowing different types of development in more areas that can hopefully house more people. Um, so that's something that people are looking at everywhere people are experimenting with how to solve this. And I think one thing, you know, we've been a little depressing this episode, but something that gives me hope is that we still have a homelessness issue that I think we can put our arms around. We could be the example of the Western city that finds something that works. And with the number of people who are committed to having this discussion, I'm hopeful that everybody can start working in the same direction instead of multiple directions and hopefully be the city that figures this out. Yeah, it's on the forefront for groups like it wasn't ever before. You know, they're talking about it at forecasts and they're talking about it at meetings and they're having special meetings. So maybe we we can get on it. Well, we'll be following your reporting. Jessica and Catherine, thank you so much for your time today. Where can listeners find you on Twitter? I'm at jbame underscore news, and jbame is J-B-O-E-H-M underscore news. I'm at Katherine Rager, Katherine with a C-R-E-A-G-O-R. Okay, stay tuned, Gaggle listeners. We've got our interview with presidential hopeful Mike Bloomberg after this message from our colleagues at the Des Moines Register. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Democratic presidential hopeful Michael Bloomberg returned to Arizona on Saturday. The billionaire and former New York mayor held a big public event right downtown in the warehouse district. While other Democratic candidates are making states like Iowa and New Hampshire a priority, Bloomberg's taking a different approach. He's focusing on Super Tuesday states or swing states like Arizona. We caught up with him on Saturday. And of course, the first thing we asked him was, how does he plan on spending all of his money in Arizona? Well, uh, we have nine offices and 55 people, something like that. Uh, so we're certainly making an investment. We're running an enormous number of uh, social media ads and television ads, uh, all focused on uh, turning the state blue. Then we asked him about the crowded Democratic field. What makes him the best Democrat to take on President Trump? Republicans who uh, didn't like Hillary, voted Republican, would like a ways back into the Democratic Party, but they want somebody that is more business-oriented and will worry about the fiscal side. And I'm a fiscal conservative and a social liberal, so I think I have a good chance of beating Donald Trump. Um, in terms of the others, uh, they can. Uh, what, what they're going to do is they're going to uh, try to convince you that uh, they have some ideas that are good. Uh, what I'm trying to convince you is I've already done it, and if you want to know what I'm going to do, just take a look at New York. If you don't like what we did in New York, don't vote for me. But if you think New York is better after 12 years than it was before, the problems that 
Phoenix and all, even all the, the other cities in Arizona have are identical to the problems that New York has. Scales may be different, slight emphasis here and there, but we all worry about health care we can't afford. We all worry about too many guns in the streets. We all worry about public education not being what it should be. And you go right down the list. Homelessness is another one. Uh, jobs of the future, particularly as technology comes in. At the end of our very rushed interview, we asked him about the generational battle that is playing out right now for the soul of the Democratic Party and what he makes of all this concern that there's too much money in politics. There seems to be a generational battle for the Democratic Party playing out right now, and there's also a lot of concern about the influence of money in politics. How do you unite the party and present yourself any differently uh, than the billionaire who's in the White House right now? That's not where the money is. The money is from the tobacco lobby and the pharmaceutical lobby and the gun lobby and those kinds of lobbies that are influencing Congress and, and at state levels as well. That's where the money that's really destroying things is coming from. The fact that I spend a lot of money, look, I came in so late, the only ways I'm ever going to get up there is, is, is to spend a lot of money. It's the same thing as they coming in two years ago. I don't have any real advantage over them. And, and commercials can only do so much. What you really have to do is explain to people what you do and have them look in the eye and say, I trust this guy or I don't trust that woman or whatever the case may be. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, I guess the ways I'd phrase it is I'm trying to get rid of Donald Trump. It's the best investment I can ever make, and that's where the money I'm putting in. Okay, Yvonne, let's go to afterthoughts here on this. Um, we had only a few minutes to talk to uh, Mayor Bloomberg. Um, we heard his stump speech. Did you have any big takeaways from this relatively abbreviated event? Look, he presented himself as just an alternative billionaire to Donald Trump. He cast himself as the un-Trump president. And he said, if you want someone who cares about science, if you want someone who will help solve this immigration uh, problem, if you want someone who can tackle climate change and restore our standing on the world stage, then I'm someone who can do that. I'm someone who tackled really big problems in New York and I built coalitions and I listened to people and I made things happen. And so he's really not running against his other Democratic rivals. He is running as the antidote to President Trump. I think the most interesting thing about his event, which was very brief in terms of presidential campaign stops or presidential candidate campaign stops. The one thing that was really interesting was talking to voters. A lot of them showed out. He, ha he had to move his event because um, interest was so high. And that has been reflected in your uh, phone messages, right, with people who were calling and wanting to know more about him. Right. So that's one of the things that stood out to me earlier when we first uh, had our first brush with the campaign starting here in Arizona at the end of last year. There's we got so many more calls and emails about how do I get involved or how where is his office at? Uh, it was just kind of unusual. Compare it to, for example, Senator Elizabeth Warren, who came here in August. She's the only other sort of top tier presidential candidate who's done something in Arizona to try and uh, address this state more forthrightly. 
And yeah, there was interest certainly, but it wasn't kind of lingering and it wasn't as much about how do I get involved with that. The number one issue on the minds of the voters that we talked to at this event was just that they want somebody who can beat Donald Trump. So it comes down to an electability question. After that, the issues really are falling along the familiar themes that we've been talking about since 2018, like health care, the economy, um, making sure we don't get into another world war. And, you know, folks were in pretty good spirits. The event did not last all that long. Uh, there was food. There were mariachis. There was, it didn't seem to me any expense spared for this event. And that is uh, a theme that is familiar with Bloomberg's campaign, not just here in Arizona, but across the country. Yeah. And I think that, you know, the symbolism, the, the things that were not said, but are just sort of understood in all this is, is also worth noting. Mayor Bloomberg has nine offices around Arizona and his presence at all is just really sort of a statement of his valuation of this state in the general election. So um, a lot of people are in Iowa and we all understand that, especially this week. But uh, Mayor Bloomberg seems to be going to where he thinks the battle is going to be uh, waged most fiercely in the fall. And even if he's not the nominee, he has said that his staffing and his infrastructure that he's built up here and in other states will remain for the eventual nominee. We will be covering that. But that is all we have for today. While we still have you, please don't forget to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribing means you won't miss any of our crucial coverage in 2020. And if you rate and review our show, that's even better. For more of our coverage, you can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Yvonne Winget. And I'm at Ronald J. Hansen, and that's H-A-N-S-E-N. Today's episode was edited and produced by Taylor Seeley with oversight from Katie O'Connell. Audio from our interview with Mike Bloomberg is from Arizona Republic photojournalist Patrick Breen. Thanks so much for listening to The Gaggle, a podcast from the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. We'll see you next week.